Before coming to Good Shepherd, I spent four years among the students of Western Washington University and Whatcom Community College. And while I love so much about Good Shepherd, I can't tell you how much I miss hanging out with college students. It was at Western that I learned something important from student organizations working against sexual assault and advocating for survivors. I learned the definition of consent, specifically consent to sexual activity, though the definition could be applied more broadly. True consent meets four factors. It is sober, verbal, enthusiastic, and revocable. Let's look at those one at a time. True consent is sober. By this definition, anybody under the influence of alcohol or other drugs is not able to give consent. True consent is verbal. Her provocative outfit was not a factor. She was not hinting with her body. Unless she communicated in a language that was understood, it was not consent. True consent is enthusiastic. A half-hearted, well, I guess, or simply a failure to say no, does not qualify as consent. Finally, true consent is revocable. Past sexual activity is no indication of future consent. And an initial yes, no matter how sober or enthusiastic, can be taken back at any time. When it comes to sex, there is no such thing as a point of no return. Being on a college campus, we weren't talking about minimum age for consent, but that's also crucial. As a society, we understand that only adults can consent to sexual activity. And while the definition of adult is not obvious or uniform, thankfully, we've grown more conservative about this point in recent years. I wish I'd known about this stuff in high school and college. The first time I heard about any of it was in the 1990s when conversations at Antioch College about verbal consent were widely mocked by commentators and comedians alike. The fear behind the jokes was that the expectation of verbal consent would make sex a lot less, well, sexy. Yet 30 years later, we're finally listening to those who were ignored back then and this has led to a lively cultural conversation. Okay, so why is your priest talking about sex and consent in a sermon? Because today's gospel passage is all about consent and God's insistence on it. When I consider the story of Mary, I see that the church has missed a big opportunity. Christians should have been the first ones talking about consent in terms like those we hear on college campuses today. According to Luke, Mary is a young woman living in Nazareth. We have no idea how old she is. Common assumptions that she is only 14 are not supported by the text and certainly aren't helpful for our purposes here. We only know that Mary is an unmarried virgin. The angel Gabriel comes to visit Mary and as we know, angels are messengers from God. The angel bursts out with, Greetings, favored one! The Lord is with you! Mary, being human like any of us, is, well, 
perplexed. Actually, she's already showing an incredible amount of bravery. Usually, people quake in their boots the moment an angel shows up. Mary seems to be just mildly troubled and apprehensive. She is favored. Can that be good? I like to imagine that Gabriel had intended to say first, don't be afraid, like angels usually do, but was overcome with joy at this encounter and just forgot. (laughs) Seeing Mary's perplexity, Gabriel returns to the script, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Okay, stop there a minute. It sounds like Gabriel isn't asking, Gabriel is telling. Does Mary have an opportunity to consent? But remember that the angel is only the messenger. Gabriel is saying, okay, here's God's grand idea. You will bear the child who will be called God's son, the Messiah, the long-awaited king over Israel in the mold of your ancestor David. But unlike David's ill-fated kingdom with its unnecessary temple, Jesus' kingdom will last forever, according to the promises God made to Abraham, Moses, David, and all the rest. Are you cool with this plan? Mary doesn't say no. Remember, this doesn't mean she has given consent yet, but neither does she say yes. She asks for more information. Look, Gabe, I'm a virgin. Your plan is missing one key factor, sperm. The angel's reply feels to me honestly pretty frightening. To be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of making a baby is a big deal. It's not sex, but it is pregnancy. Without Mary's consent, it would be, well, God is love. So we know God doesn't work like that. Gabriel's explanation is that God will take care of the biological details All Mary needs to do is to be willing to help. Then Gabriel adds, by the way, your elderly cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Just one more demonstration that for God, nothing is impossible. Well then, Mary breathes, I hereby give my sober and verbal consent. Okay, that's two factors taken care of. We have no reason to believe Mary's been in the wine cellar and she just said yes out loud. What, are the, what about the other two factors? Well, the third factor is enthusiasm. The bare words of the text don't clarify whether Mary is excitedly on board, but then she visits her cousin Elizabeth. When she arrives, the baby, John the Baptist, leaps in Elizabeth's womb for joy. And Mary sings a song in response called the Magnificat. You want enthusiasm? Listen to this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This rapturous pouring forth of song sounds pretty affirming of the plan. But it's not all about Mary and her child. Oh no, Mary continues. Indeed, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
A quick obligatory side note on the word fear. We're not talking about people cowering before God in abject terror. Here the word fear means appropriate reverence and awe, clarity that God is the loving creator of the universe and honoring that understanding. Mark that well, because the power dynamics that automatically come with God make the distinction crucial. So we continue. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Mary's not just going to have a cute baby to care for and adore. She's signing up for the revolution. Israel will no longer be a tiny, scorned, oppressed people. God will feed the hungry. The proud, the mighty, and the rich will be put in their place, left with no power, no food, and no ego-driven authority. In their place, the poor will finally have an abundance. I put all this in future tense, but the Magnificat puts it in the past perfect. We have a confusion of tenses that we could call eternal tense. However you conjugate the verbs, God's will is reality in our universe, and it is good news. This is what Mary's pregnancy means, and she knows it. Yes, she is enthusiastic. Stepping back in the story a bit, there's something else I like to imagine about Gabriel. Maybe Mary wasn't God's first choice. Maybe Gabriel visited 17 other young women in Nazareth before finding the one brave enough to accept the invitation. Or maybe God knew all along exactly whom to ask first, knowing Mary so well, knowing her better than she knew herself. Maybe God had a strong hunch that Mary's consent would be sober, verbal, and enthusiastic. Check, check, and check. Wait, there's one more factor. Can Mary's consent be revoked? Let's face it. Some projects, once undertaken with joy and enthusiasm, begin to change us immediately and cannot truly be revoked. The baby is coming. And the baby is wanted and welcome and receiving nourishment from his mother. Mary is all in. Are you? Are you all in on Mary's pregnancy? Because it affects you too. Are you ready to receive God's mercy in this generation too? Since Mary specifically said this happens in every generation. Are you okay with the proud being scattered, the mighty being cast down, and the rich being sent away with nothing? Because if you are any of these things, proud, mighty, or rich, this affects you. I have certainly identified as all three in various situations. If we're not ready to surrender our arrogance, power, and wealth, the project of Christmas is going to feel threatening to us. Or maybe you're at the other end of things. Maybe you're hungry, lonely, hurting, 
ready to be filled with food, which is how we all first come to understand love anyway. Maybe once the hungry are fed and power and wealth are shared and all the mighty are brought down from their thrones and humbled, maybe then we can truly see God's greatness. Maybe then we can welcome God soberly, verbally, and enthusiastically and not even dream of revoking that welcome. The angel is standing in your doorway and is telling you the plan. You are to be pregnant with God. So are we all. We are all to carry and nourish God inside us. Then we are to push God out of our very bodies through the pain and sweat of our lives, creating the very life of God, giving back to God the gift of life that God gave to us. What this looks like in your life will be unique to you. It will depend on your gifts, your talents, your desires, your ways of loving. You may notice that what God asks of you is missing some key factors. To this, God says, I will take care of all that in ways you don't understand. You can always say no, and then God will move on to somebody else. But you would miss out on an incredible amount of joy, and others would miss out on you. Are you good with this? Are you ready to be a part of this incredible gift? All God asks is your consent.